The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hi, it's Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. In part one, we discussed Whoopi Goldberg's terrible remarks about the Holocaust. We discussed her apology, whether it was a real apology, not a real apology. We discussed her suspension. You're about to listen to part two, where we discuss where do we go from here. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. And that's really where I want to try to I want to try to figure this out. I'm still sort of deeply studying this, trying to absorb it. Her comments were anything from uneducated to harmful to hateful to horrific. But I take it at face value because I don't know her personally that she's not an anti-Semite. But I do think that this one strike rule, this cancel culture is terrible for all sides. So if you have a person who made a mistake and, you know, I have no reason to think her apology wasn't sincere. Rabbi Shmuley Botech, aren't we better off? allowing her to educate, to use the moment to teach, allowing the view to use the moment to teach. Because as you said earlier to another question, the percentage of uneducated people about the Holocaust is terrible. Jonathan Greenblatt cited a study about how 63% of Gen Z and millennials, this is a study done by the Claims Conference, 63% of millennials surveyed did not know that 6 million Jews were killed. This is a moment for us to gather together and Maybe be introspective and and try to address this issue rather than pile on whoopee. I'm not sure how I feel about it yet, but I'm curious what you think. No, I I agree with you. Look, um, it's funny. My children don't necessarily agree with me. They're people are angry and they want to see some kind of. A lot of young Jews feel that it's Jews are open targets that you can say things that are hurtful to the Jewish community and get away with it. And they want to see punitive measures. I, I don't agree with that. I try to live by all of by Jewish values, and Jewish values certainly emphasize repentance, contrition, um, you know, sincere penance. We are not God. We can't get into the heart of people and to see if their apologies are sincere. We just have to expect an apology. If we're going to play God and say, "Well, did she mean it? Did she not?" Mean it? Then, then, then you're never going to have an apologetic society. And we don't have an apologetic society. No one says sorry for anything. So when someone does, I feel we have to take it seriously. That is why I defended Roseanne Barr so vehemently. And, you know, Jason, the irony of all ironies is that I went on The View just a few days after Roseanne, who had a show named after her. Remember, let's remember that, you know, Whoopi Goldberg is one of five hosts on The View, but the Roseanne show was called The Roseanne Show, and she was fired from her show. Um, And I went on The View and I was arguing with Whoopi Goldberg and the other hosts saying that Roseanne cried, begged forgiveness repeatedly, and why won't anyone forgive her? So I I, I did like, uh, I think it was also Jonathan Greenblatt who said he prefers a council culture as opposed to a cancel culture, like we counsel each other. But, you know, The View is a very influential show. And I have a close friend who was the executive producer of The View up until a year ago. Uh, for five for five years, she she ran the View. She's an African American woman who I, I know from the Oprah Winfrey Show because she used to work for Oprah. Incredible woman, incredible friend of the Jewish community, very dear friend of our family. And she and I were discussing this about, you know, the View has phenomenal influence, and I would much rather see them leverage that influence to to educate about the Holocaust because of these shocking statistics. The Holocaust, Jason, that you and I can both see, is being forgotten. Um, you know. When I here in Dubai, interestingly enough, someone said to me, "If you weren't here at World Expo at a Holocaust remembrance commemoration being uh, done by Arabs and Jews, Jews and Muslims in Dubai, where would you be in New York for Holocaust Remembrance Day?" And you know what? I I couldn't answer that question because there isn't always a cent, even in New York City with two and a half million Jews, there isn't always a a central and extremely well attended commemoration for either Holocaust Remembrance Day, which is a UN commemoration, or even Yom HaShoah, which is Israel's official official Holocaust Remembrance Day, which occurs in May, a week after Passover. Our organization, the World Values Network, for that reason, did this big commemoration 
at um, Carnegie Hall on January 20th for the 80th anniversary to the day of the Vonzi Conference, which was, which was the two-hour breakfast held on January 20th, 1942, that planned the Holocaust. But, you know, even that, it was during COVID, and we struggled to get, you know, a good crowd. Thank God we got a few hundred people. It was very hard, and I'm glad it wasn't canceled. But the Jewish community is also kind of failing at Holocaust education. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder if our museum-focused model, which is very successful, you know, the, I, I, I believe that the uh, Holocaust Smithsonian Museum in Washington is the second most visited after the Air and Space Museum. Um, but I'm beginning to believe that the, the museum model or the monument model is no longer the way to go. Uh, there are some innovative ideas uh, about Holocaust education, like uh, the Eva stories thing that was watched by millions of people as uh, uh, an Instagram account, as if, uh, you know, a, a, a true diary of a girl who was murdered in the Holocaust, but as if she did daily Instagram posts. I mean, we have to come up with new ideas because we have to engage a new generation. But punitive measures against Whoopi Goldberg, who has no history of anti-Semitism, is probably not the way to go. Thank you so much for joining me, Shmuley. God bless you. Thank you, Jason. And let's talk about the suspension. You mentioned you're not a cancel culture person. And, and, and of course, we don't know whether Whoopi was sincere or not sincere. Let's, let's give her the benefit of the doubt for the moment that it was a sincere, though not necessarily strong enough, apology. Uh, one thing in her apology that I did like was that she did say she, and I don't remember the exact quote, but she was not educated enough about it, and now she's more educated. And, and it takes a big person to say that publicly. Um, whether she should do more or not, I, I definitely hear your point. Do you think she should have been suspended, not suspended? Should more be done? I think The View still needs to do more. Uh, look, they had Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL on. Um, so I think he tried to you know, educate about the facts of the Holocaust and how race played a, the most significant role in Hitler's ideology and the Nazi ideology and the extermination of the Jews. But it's not enough because, again, there's two, two to three million people on average watching The View every day. And so I think that they still have more work to do to, uh, to hopefully revisit this issue. And, uh, you know, I could tell you that on social media, I saw um, one woman who's a survivor. And, you know, we're lucky for the survivors who are still alive. They're, um, they're older and, and most are passing away. And we're losing the, the last survivors who can, who can testify to what happened to them. But, uh, you know, there was one, one survivor on social media who said, you know, I'll come on The View and I'll, I'll tell you what happened to me. And so, you know, that's the kind of programming that The View could do. And I would really encourage them to do that. Other people have called on the view to consider bringing on a Jewish host. Um, but I think that there's, there's more that the view really needs to do. I'm not, I'm not uh, favorable to cancel culture. I have to tell you, Jason, um, I know you've got a bigger audience, but here I am a Jewish woman and I'm talking to you, a Jewish man. And one thing I can say is that so many of my Jewish friends feel that um, all the rules apply to every minority group in America except to Jews. You know, there was this real sense of, oh, my God, imagine if a Jewish person got on television and said, well, you know, you know, I don't think slavery was about racism. Right. Um, or or whatever. You know, imagine some other ethnic group said this about a Jew or this one said this about that one. Imagine the fallout. Wouldn't the person get fired immediately? And so I think there was also maybe a sense of relief in a way that there was some consequence to what happened with Whoopi Goldberg, because I think that in some ways, a lot of Jewish Americans felt a moment of relief that we weren't completely ignored in, in the pain that we, we, many of us were feeling. Last question, Ellie, what do we do from here, right? What's the lesson that we learn? How do we move forward so that we can learn from this very important um, situation? This is a question that I grapple with on a daily basis. And many people I know who are working to combat anti-Semitism are, are constantly grappling with this question. We know that um, hatred of the Jewish people starts really almost with the beginning of, of history and time. Uh, I believe that Jews have been the moral conscience of humanity 
with Abraham, the father of Judaism, bringing the notion of monotheism and the one God into world, and then and then you know Jews winding up having to travel from country to country, and we've been targeted and hated for it since the beginning of history. What I know is that we have to constantly educate about the threat of anti-Semitism and Jew hatred. And teaching the history of the Holocaust is really incredibly important so that people understand the depth of evil and how the, the, you know, the, 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 how the Nazis created hell on earth so that we know when we see evil that you cannot sit back and let it flourish, that you have to stand up and fight against it. Anti-Semitism is a unique form of evil because, as I said, it has it has existed from the beginning of history, and the the rationale, quote unquote, for Jew hatred has changed over time. So whether it was a religious reason, the accusations of Jews killing Jesus Christ, to it becoming a more um, scientific scientific quote unquote race based reason, which is the Nazis and and considering Jews an inferior race. To today, the accusations of Israel committing apartheid and genocide against Palestinians. We saw the Amnesty International report just come out where this slanderous accusations against Jews in the Jewish state of Israel and anti-Zionism. So, you know, anti-Semitism morphs over time. If there is one message that I want to share with your audience, it's that every society that has allowed hatred of the Jew to spread winds up self-destructing. And we saw that with the Spanish Inquisition. The King of Spain some years ago uh, made a statement and he said that he believed that the Spanish Inquisition was the beginning of the end of Spain. And we know that that's what happened with the Holocaust because not only did the Nazis murder 6 million Jews, but uh, we lost 11 million non-Jews during World War II. And so... And we saw the complete and utter destruction of the European continent. Now imagine when Hitler published Mein Kampf if he had been stopped. Imagine when Hitler first told the world that he wanted to kill the Jews if if the world had stopped him. Thank you, Eli Kohanim, so much for sharing your thoughts on this. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jason. Right. And she took responsibility, not only publicly, and I don't have the quote in front of me, I wish I did, but something along the lines of, I was wrong, I was ill-informed, and now I'm informed. And whatever those words were that she used were important words. Not a lot of people would be willing to do that, no matter how wrong she may have been, no matter that she said something that she shouldn't have said. Let me address to me, what after I cut through all those issues, something you touched upon in your earlier answer, which is the future. Where I come at after speaking to so many people, and I have many more to still speak to over the next several days, is we obviously have a lot of work to do. If somebody like Whoopi Goldberg doesn't know about the Holocaust, doesn't know what it should be, what have we done wrong and what can we do about it in the future? So, I I mean, I think that there's a, uh, a natural, as we move further and further from any historical event, there is a natural you know, etiolization, there's a natural sort of thinning out of knowledge about it. It's one of the reasons why this year I'm taking a group from March of the Living so that they can actually see, you know, what was done to the Jewish community of Eastern Europe uh, in general and in Poland in particular. And part of it is that there's a, a great focus on discrimination and some of it appropriate and some of it, I think, not at all um, appropriate. Jews fall into this very weird category of we're not exactly a race because you can't convert to a race. We're not exactly a religion because you're not born into a religion. We're something else. I, I call us a religious family. And because we don't fit easy categories, there are some people who just want to dismiss, well, this terrible thing happened the way Whoopi Goldberg did, you know, but it was basically not, it wasn't anything that plugs into all the hot button issues that Americans feel um, are, are so relevant and so debated these days. But this happened in the lifetime of people who were still around, that a third of an entire people were murdered. So as survivors die, 
we have to try to figure out ways to do that very difficult thing, which is to make younger people care about things that happened before they were alive. And that's a big challenge, no matter what it is. Rabbi Wolpe, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on this, your wisdom. I appreciate it. Thank you. So how does it make you feel and how concerned should we feel, whether it's race or religion, like you say, or any of the other descriptions, that she didn't focus on that, perhaps wasn't even aware of that? Jews in America are always going to have to confront this stereotype and this image that's got some truth to it, which is the fact that we're pretty successful, right? We're living at a time in America right now where success is not very popular. What's popular right now is to be a victim and to be weak, right? So we don't do well during these times. So it's, it's normal that we're not going to be taken that seriously as victims, right? We were victims during the Holocaust, but God, we've come a long, long way. So it didn't shock me to hear us being whitewashed, you know, because if powerful and success means white privilege, in a way, Jews, in terms of image, are like the ultimate in that. And that's how we're being positioned, you know, white privilege. It's not good for us. It really isn't. I mean, I've, I've often said that, you know, envy and towards the Jews is kind of the price we have to pay uh, for success. And sometimes it's a very high price. So she fell into that mainstream, Jason. There was nothing that was shocking. And then when, you know, she kind of pulled an all lives matter. I don't think she's anti-Semitic at all. I think she just made a mistake. So let's put Whoopi aside for a minute. uh, And let's assume it wasn't out of malice. It was either out of ignorance, misinformation, looking through a certain lens what do we do now? What do we, how do we use this as a teaching moment for ourselves, for our kids, for society? Yeah, well, one, one of the ways is not to fall into the trap of playing the victim Olympics, you know, because there, there's a real tendency to say, oh, I'm a more of a victim than you, and how dare you, and, you know, we're also suffering, and, you know, and we had the Holocaust, and, you know, how dare you, you know, treat us as we're, were big and successful and powerful. I think there's something there in terms of how we teach our kids to be proud of being Jewish and not because we're victims, to be proud of the fact that we're very engaged with the world, we contribute to the world. And when you do that, it's like a vaccine. You know, it's like inoculating one. So we become, you know, not vulnerable to a lot of the hostility and the opposition and the envy that we're going to get. I think that, you know, we need to inoculate our kids with some Jewish love, with some Jewish knowledge and with some Jewish pride. And that will make them much strengthened to be able to handle these kind of storms. I got it. And we should, we should do that. We should not play the victim card. I agree. And we should realize we still have a big problem, a lot of education there, but probably the biggest point of education is to teach our kids to walk tall and proud as Jews. Amen. Well, David Suisa, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. It's great to see you again, Jason. Same here. I keep coming back to the same conclusion, talking to each guest on this special series that I'm doing, which is we have to do something now. Like, what do we do going forward to educate ourselves, our kids? You spend uh, your career fighting this, Rabbi Heyer, the Simon Wiesenthal Center. How do we take this as a teaching moment and do better? Well, I think that the best teaching moment would be if Whoopi Goldberg, uh, basically on her television uh, show, which is watched by millions of people, uh, does more than one show on this issue, explaining what what about the Jews? Uh, You know, what happened to them and and, and what Hitler did to them? That would be the best way of apologizing. Use the occasion. You have the microphone. You also have the audience. You have millions of people. You can use it to to clarify it and to walk away from that very controversial and untrue statement. So you know what I'd love to see? I'd love to see Whoopi Goldberg, maybe the entire, all the hosts of The View, go to March of the Living and uh, do that tour. Go to your museum 
in Jerusalem, Israel. Uh, go to the museum in Washington. Maybe even film some episodes there. Maybe that could be the the solution and the work going forward. What do you think of that? I think that's an excellent idea, and I want to tell you something. We just completed, we haven't opened it to the public yet, the 80th anniversary of the Vance Conference. At the Vance Conference, we tell the whole story. This is a complete recreation. As soon as you walk into the Museum of Tolerance here in Los Angeles, and the highlight of it is that basically of the 15 people that were present to vote on the issue of the final solution, it is interesting to note that before the meeting started of the 15, Heydrich says to Eichmann, I think we're going to lose. I'm afraid about what's going to happen at this meeting. So Eichmann says, what do you mean? How, what do you, how, how can we lose? He says of the 15, eight are PhDs. And they're not going to want to hear the talk of a final solution. And then the meeting starts and all eighth enthusiastically endorse the idea of a final solution, teaching the world that just because you had a fine education, two of the, two of the eight, by the way, one the recipient of a Rockefeller grant, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the other from the University of Paris, the PhD, but eight PhDs sitting around and saying it's okay to have a final solution against the Jewish people. That would be a wonderful thing if Whoopi Goldberg had a whole whole program on that. Wow. No, I agree. Rabbi Hire, thank you so much for enlightening us. Thank you. Thank you. Then what do we do, right? So many other important people have worked at this. And if anything, I could argue, based on your answer, that maybe it's gotten worse. Not because you haven't done your job, but because there is this new... Um, this new outlook that changes definitions and history and all that. So what can we do differently? What can we do better to try to get past this? Is it fixable? Yeah. So first of all, I'm wondering out loud whether or not the Jews come back in a future life as salmon, because we're always swimming upstream and against, <laughs> against the tide. But uh, what I think uh, we have here is as follows. You know, it's not up for me to say whether it should have been two days, two shows, or two weeks. But let's assume that what ABC did, because we all demand all the time accountability, they made a move for accountability, holding Whoopi Goldberg accountable for the implications of what she said. Okay. Now, how about ABC's accountability? The media plays a significant role in our contemporary culture, in our social life, and you know better than most, in our political and, uh, and diplomatic uh, arenas. And they have to also own a part of the fact that our current political culture, social culture, is broken. So what I would suggest, uh, and uh, I did so a little bit earlier to, uh, to one of the interviews, I remember which one, is now it's time for ABC to step, step up. And the way I see it is one of two ways. Give us an hour, have a program exactly on the issues that you raised, exactly. Grid up on the screen the definitions, historic and uh, contemporary of racism, and uh, give a chance for the American people to take a deeper dive. The, se the second piece also to ABC is, I was just in Washington earlier this week, I was freezing. So in the next two, three weeks, bring the view out to the Museum of Tolerance here across the street in Los Angeles, tape a couple of shows. We've got 300 seats, magnificent theater. Maybe two of those shows should actually be town hall meetings. Meaning let the American way is to let everybody be heard. And it's okay. We obviously at the Museum of Tolerance with 7 million visitors, we have to deal with the following areas every day, racism, Holocaust, anti-Semitism. They're linked, but they're, they're not the same. There are plenty of viewers 
to that program who absolutely agree with Whoopi Goldberg's statement, not necessarily because they're anti-Semitic, but because, well, what do you mean? Of course, racism means people of color. They're the targets. And they, you know, uh, I was at the FBI this week, every single year since the early 90s, since they tabulate uh, hate crimes annually, the number one target of race-based hate in America are Blacks. And the number one target of religion-based hate in America are Jews. So it's not a mere ma mention a matter of semantics. Let me share one more vignette with you about why I feel so strongly about this. This isn't new. This started well, where I witnessed personally when I was the spokesman for the Jewish groups at the Durban United Nations World Conference Against Racism just a few days before 9-11 took place in South Africa. That's where Israel apartheid was birthed. But I'll never forget that on the closing night where 3,500 NGOs were in a huge tent on a, on a football pitch, they were going over this horrific document, terribly anti-Semitic, hundreds of pages long. But in there, we had managed to sneak in two lines condemning the firebombing of three synagogues in the suburbs of Paris. And uh, as everyone was going through this document, a woman, a delegate from the World Council of Churches, stepped up to the mic in the audience and said the following, if everyone will go to page such and such, 25 point B, says something here about anti-Semitism and his synagogues being attacked, what does that have to do with racism? We're here to discuss racism. I move to strike that item from the final document. And by voice vote, the care, the gatekeepers of civil society from all over the planet voted to remove the little reference to anti-Semitism and every one of the remaining Jews at that debacle myself included, weren't even sitting together, got up and walked out. And I can still hear the catcalls from the people there. So I absolutely do not believe that the average viewer of The View has that kind of approach. Not at all. They're, everyone's living their lives today in real time. I'm old enough to remember and to uh, make sure others do not forget there's a continuity there's a method to the madness about how this idea of redefining racism in a way to exclude Jews, that is a part of a larger game plan to um, marginalize us, erase us, purge us at universities. None of that is anywhere near the worldview of Whoopi Goldberg. So the deep dive, and I commend you for doing it, the deep dive is really to try to figure out where did she get this idea from? And when we look what's been happening, you know, with the riots, with COVID, with the lockdown, with social media, uh, you know, and everything else that's turned our world upside down, it reminds me of something that Simon Wiesenthal of Blessed Memory said. I was with him in 1980, so you can tell I'm really old. Uh, at a university lecture in the United States. And a, a college student got up and said, uh, Mr. Wiesenthal, could it happen again? And his answer was quite compelling and terribly relevant today, more than I think he ever would have imagined. He said, if you have a situation where there's hate plus a crisis plus technology, anything is possible. Now, when Simon was talking about technology, he meant the radio. He meant the horrible documentary films made uh, that were in the, screened in theaters across Germany. Remember, uh, when the Nazis referred to Jews as vermin and disease, that was just after the Spanish flu had killed, what, 20 million people? So they knew what they were doing. 
And he went on to say the following, decades before uh, the internet, and here we are doing a podcast, he said, if the technology that the Nazis had was available in 1492, no Jew would have survived in Spain, no Catholic would have survived in England, and no Protestant would have survived in France. What you said, what Simon Wiesenthal said, is it's a bit chilling, right? Because he couldn't even have imagined Twitter and Facebook and social media and every podcast and everything else, as you mentioned. The story about that conference is also troubling. You know, Whoopi Goldberg said something wrong, bad, stupid, whatever, but not she's not an anti-Semite from what I'm hearing from everybody. But that woman who stood up at the microphone and asked for the removal of that clause— I don't know her. I don't know anything about her. My guess is she's a hater. But worse than that are the people that catcalled all of you for walking out. Those are really haters. And those are the people we have to watch out for. Right. And those are the self-anointed gatekeepers of what's called civil society. That's why you can have Amnesty International raising hundreds of millions of dollars around the world in the name of human rights and then turning around. And it's uh, human rights for me, but not for thee, taking an absolute lie, which they know is a lie, apartheid Israel, and uh, building up the case to hand off to the United Nations Human Rights Council, which we're going to now lobby our our current president to stop funding and leave. But this is such great, you know, it's a greater context. I don't expect Whoopi Goldberg or the producers of The View or maybe not even the president of ABC News to know any of that. But this has now happened and they've taken responsibility and accountability for her on, on her back. Now it's time for them to step forward to help correct and tell people the truth, explain to them how the heck did this thing happen? Why are people talking like this? I certainly hope they do. I thank you so much for your thoughts, for sharing your wisdom here. Rabbi Abraham Cooper, I hope to see you again soon. Okay, God bless. Good to see you. Thanks. Last question, Rebecca. And I'm very not into lack of forgiveness, right? We can't be a, a, a good, moral, decent society if somebody makes a mistake and apologizes for it and then they're out, right? And let's assume her apology was sincere. I mean, she actually tried a few times. One of the things she said in one of those apologies was not only does she stand corrected, but she realized she was uninformed and she shouldn't have spoken in an uninformed way. And now she's better informed. That was not an exact quote. If she was sincere or not, we don't know. Let's assume she was. She did say that publicly. Do you think that people should learn how to forgive better in our society? Yeah. Yes. Obviously, yes. Um I think I, I sort of thought her apology was, was sincere. It sounded that way to me, but you know, how could I possibly know? Um, I heard in her apology this struggle that I think it was in the late night talk show piece where she was sort of still struggling with, are we white? Are we not white? What does that mean? I didn't hear in that either any kind of ill intent. I actually heard her confused, literally confused, unable to separate out, you know, the racial sort of understanding, the understanding of race of the 19th, 18th, 19th centuries and how Hitler and the Nazis understood race, not as a skin color issue only, and how she understands race today because it's the only way Americans understand race is black and white. She she literally struggles with that. And, you know, it feels to me like that's a great moment for somebody to explain that to her because I really believed that she really had no idea of, um, of the difference between the two. And so um, I don't think she was apologizing for that because she really didn't understand it. And people were, you know, lopping on to that, sort of saying, see, she still doesn't apologize. She still doesn't, you know, sometimes you have to forgive people even when they don't fully apologize. You have to recognize they don't even know what they're supposed to be apologizing for. And then there's this other side of apologies. We live in an apology culture. Everybody has to apologize for everything. Um, You don't have to apologize if you don't feel sorry. (laughs) And I'd rather you wouldn't. Um, and I don't think we have to extract these apologies, like, you know, drag her through the mud to get the apology out of her if she doesn't feel the apology. Uh, the apology she offered felt fine to me, and that part of it felt sincere, and the rest of it felt 
confused because I think she is confused. And I think maybe we should all forgive her for being confused because why would she be a Holocaust expert? Why would she know about 19th century racial science? Who, who really knows that stuff? I kind of knew it because I went to graduate school in Jewish studies. Um, you know, I'm not so sure I would have done a deep dive into that myself. And I'm a Jewish person with a father-in-law, mother-in-law who went through the Holocaust. Why do we expect people to know these things, right? And then, you know, if you remember a few years ago, there was that study, it might have been Pew that came out, said like, I don't know, half of Americans didn't know that six million Jews died in the Holocaust. I mean, there are headlines that people don't know. We expected Whoopi Goldberg to understand the details. Um, why are we so offended that she didn't understand that or know that is also an interesting question. Maybe we haven't done the best job of educating the next generation about the Holocaust and there's something we have to look at in ourselves. I just think in this instance, we were too ready to jump on the anti-Semitism, bring out the ADL armed forces and get the apology and make the whole, whole statement. And I don't think that's what this was. While it's shocking that somebody doesn't understand as much of the Holocaust as we think she should, that doesn't make her a bad person. And I hope, you know, based on her words, she now takes that to heart and works to both understand it and educate other people. So um, thanks for pointing that out also. Rebecca, it was really great to have you as a guest. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on this. Thanks so much. Nice to be here. Thank you. Oh, definitely. Look, I really like the idea of them going to to the Holocaust to the to the camps. Um, I actually suggested to a couple of my guests a few ideas that are similar. They should do this for March of the Living. Maybe yeah. go to the new Simon Wiesenthal Museum in Jerusalem or in L.A. Actually, I'll take it a step further. We recently saw in Dubai that they've been educating about the Holocaust. Maybe they should tape a program live from Dubai and do a Holocaust education there. There are so many great ideas. Do you think? It's realistic. I know ABC has the resources, but it's not necessarily a moneymaker. Would they, do they take their social responsibility about this seriously? Look, I do think it's a possibility. Um, the view has gone, you know, on site pre COVID to places um, over the years. And I think they realize that there's a huge opportunity here to educate. I'm obviously not in the room anymore. I, I have no idea if this is something they're they're actually considering. Um, but I think it's something that, you know, could be done and could be done without, you know, a crazy amount of of work. I mean, you know, me, you, I'm sure any of the other number of people you're talking to for this segment could basically put together the itinerary, figure out the host, figure out the the survivors that could go with them, figure out the the tour provider. I mean, it's, you know, this is all things that there's no reinventing the wheel here. Um, and, and this would just be a matter of kind of getting the talent there and producing one show. And I think, do I think it's a possibility? I do. I think it would be amazing if they would do it. I think it could be a huge moment. It could be timed for Yom HaShoah. I mean, we're talking about something. We have, you know, a couple weeks of lead time, a month now, um, two months, I don't know. So, yeah, I think it's something that could happen. Well, hopefully somebody at ABC will listen to the podcast and, and take it to heart. You spoke about survivors, and I don't know if your Oma, your grandma, is still alive, but clearly she lived through the Holocaust. Is she alive, by the way? She is. And I actually, um, my mom went over there yesterday to read her the piece, and she called me, like, hysterically crying and was like, oh, my God, people are reading my words. I'm famous. Thank you so much. It was so sweet. So it was, it yeah, was really so nice to hear. Imagine when she was a kid she, that she would ever think that her granddaughter would be writing about this in the Washington Post. But yeah. tell me about her. You know, you touched on her in the piece, but if she were sitting with Whoopi or if she were a guest panelist on The View the day yeah. after, what would she tell Whoopi and the other hosts and the audience about her life in Berlin? Yeah. So this is interesting. I, all of my grandparents have had, you know, kind of varying degrees of experience um, running, fleeing and surviving the Holocaust. I usually write much more about my paternal grandmother, Mashallah, who um, survived several camps, death marches, and was finally liberated from Bergen-Belsen. Um, Oma, you know, is a very different experience because unlike my other grandparents, she was actually, she grew up in Berlin. So in kind of the center of all the action. 
So as opposed to kind of, you know, other people living in Lithuania, living in, in these other places where just one day the Nazis came and everything changed, Oma saw this slow transition where every single month there was a new restriction, there was a new change. And she was a, she was a kid, but she was old enough to remember, oh, last year I was allowed to go to the circus and now I'm not. And she is actually an identical twin. And one of the things that really prompted them to leave was they kept getting this very odd series of letters from the German government that they now understand came from the institution that actually predated Mengele and his experiments. And they kept getting these very strange letters from the German government saying, oh, we'd love to meet your daughters, bring them in for free health care and come in. And, and my great grandmother, who was totally uneducated, but sort of just very intuitively wise, was like, we need to get out. My kids are not freaks. There is something very odd in the tone of these letters. Um, and we're so grateful that they did leave actually shortly before Kristallnacht because as an identical twin, I mean, her experience in the Holocaust would have been particularly, particularly, um, I, I don't even have the vocabulary to, to say. Um, so Oma, in talking about her experience, would often talk about growing up, walking around the streets, seeing signs saying, no Jews, no dogs, and turning to her parents and saying, I, I don't understand, are, are we like dogs? And I think for Oma to be able to sit with someone like Whoopi and say, you know, your community, we, our communities have so much in common. We've undergone so many similar forms of oppression. And for someone focused on educating, you know, for example, about, you know, what the experience of Black Americans was like in the Jim Crow South, which actually have so many parallels to the Nuremberg Laws, just about the segregation of public spaces even. I think that's something that was missing from this conversation. And I think that's where Oma would focus if she, you know, would have the chance to talk is just the feeling of being a child and, and seeing all these signs that say, you don't belong here. You're actually not welcome. If you were having coffee with your former colleagues, what would be your message to them? You know, what, what to them to say, you know, here's, here's how I see what happened and here's what I think you guys ought to do. So the team over there is really great. Respect them a lot. And um, I think it's really, it's complicated when you work on a show that has five public facing people, right? There's the five hosts that show up. Um, and then there's a team of, you know, 100, 150 people that work on production that, you know, can't speak out and, and won't speak out because they shouldn't. They're there. And that's just kind of how things have to be. Um, but obviously, also are experiencing this in kind of a lot of different lenses and ways. Um, I think what I would say is to encourage the ABC execs to do something like the Auschwitz trip. And to take this moment to say, we have a platform and we can do more than make this about cancel culture and censorship and litigating bad ideas, you know, just banning them from existence. Well, we could actually have a sunshine as the best disinfectant opportunity here. And we could take this as an opportunity to say, no, the Holocaust in general, not a super sexy topic. Americans kind of bored. It's a long time ago. A lot of other things going on. People want to put food on the table. A lot of topics that people need to cover. The view is a show after commercials. It's like, you know, 41 minutes. But because of the way the story has blown up, people are paying attention. And what what it would look like to jump in, capitalize on that, and, and actually do something good with it. Danielle Greenbaum, thank you so much for sharing your time and your thoughts with us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. And there have been a lot of studies out there about how Holocaust education um, seems to be less effective today. So many people don't know what they should know about the Holocaust. Let's spend a couple of minutes just talking about your personal history, and then if you can explain how you think we need to do better in terms of Holocaust education, can we be effective today? All right, so I was born in Poland, and not a good time for a Jewish kid. I was born in 1940 in Poland. Uh, my parents and I tried to stay ahead of the Germans, so they moved east. They lived in Warsaw, 
They moved to Baranovich, which still was Poland, but today is Belarus. That's where I was born. They kept moving east, and um, the Germans caught up with us in the city of Vilna, Lithuania, the capital of Lithuania. An order went out for the Jews to report to the ghetto. My parents had a nanny for me. The nanny said to them, um, you know what, this will take four weeks, five weeks, whatever it is. I'll take care of them. You go, and when you come back, I'll be here. They made uh, the most difficult decision parents could ever make, and that is to separate from their child to save their child. Um, ironically, and I guess through miracles, that decision not only saved my life, but saved their lives, because a family unit of three with an infant had no chance of survival. But the fact that I was separate, my mother and father were separate, and their only desire was to come back for me, um, and with, with the miracles of from above, um, we all survived. She raised me as a Catholic, gave me a new identity. And when they came back, um, she said, I saved them. He belongs to me in the church. And uh, um, uh, there were no, nobody had papers. There were no birth certificates. There was no proof of anything. Uh, she tried to get my father out of the way. So she went to the KGB, said my father survived because he collaborated. They arrested him. Then he was a manager of a factory. She said he steals. They arrested him again. Then she stole. At the end of the day, the Soviets said, we don't have time for family quarrels. You have to take it to court. So my parents took, took it to court. It was the first custody battle after liberated Europe. Um, and we had a Jewish attorney, Dimitrovsky. And my parents won the tri-level and two appeals. Um, we then were repatriated to Poland. The Soviets permitted people to go back to from where they came from. She followed. I was kidnapped. My parents kidnapped me back. We then smuggled the borders out of the out of Poland, out of the Soviet orbit, wound up in a displaced persons camp in Austria under American um, authority and supervision, and came to the U.S. in 1950. My father, Oliver Shalom, said at the age of 10, I was an old man. Um, all right. The rest was uh, Yeshiva, City College, NYU, and 50 years at the ADL. And what would you tell the head of ABC now and the people who run The View? Because the hosts are the face, but there are so many people that work behind The View. What's your message to them of what you think they should do moving forward to correct what happened and to you know, spread the right word? Your story, which is such a unique, a horrific story, but with a good outcome— um, lots of horrific stories with terrible outcomes from the Holocaust. What would you tell them to do now? Well, Jason, uh, this is an opportunity. It's a, it's a teaching opportunity. Um, the, the ignorance about the Holocaust, the Americans don't teach history. Americans don't teach geography. Uh, most, most of the kids graduate high school with a smattering of uh, one day or a half hour on World War II. So I am not surprised or shocked that there is such ignorance in American society about current history and certainly uh, not too far away history, World War II, and certainly with that Holocaust, genocide, Auschwitz, etc. So every opportunity that there is, um, it should be used. And they have a wonderful opportunity. Um, I remember, you know, uh, Oprah with Ellie Wiesel, there was an issue there at one point. And Oprah used her her um, platform. She went to Auschwitz with Ellie. She had programs. Um, I was on an Oprah program on Eden Children, etc. So this this could turn out to be a, a, a good thing, not a bad thing. Hey, Foxman, thank you. Thanks for all your work over the many years to fight anti-Semitism and the other work that you did. And thank you for sharing your time and your thoughts with me. Thank you. Thank you for being, for caring. You mentioned the ADL and there are other organizations uh, that do this, but if you were sitting with Jonathan Greenblatt, by the way, a lot of people mix Jonathan and me up, and I hope to have him on the show. But uh, I, I love looking at Twitter when they plug in my Twitter handle instead of his. <laughs> the things he says is really quite funny. If you were sitting with him, what advice would you give him? Because he did go on the show, and I actually think he was a good guest on the show and educated them properly. But what, what advice would you give him for the next steps of what you think the ADL should do? 
Oh, boy. Um, well, look, I, I, I've been pretty publicly critical of the ADL in a lot of ways over the past four or five years or so. I mean, Abe Foxman, obviously, I think, had a you know very solid track record when he was the head here. I mean, my unsolicited advice to Jonathan Greenblatt is very straightforward, honestly. I mean, the ADL was founded, obviously, over the lynching of a Jewish man in Georgia about 100 years ago. It was founded as kind of an organization to oppose anti-Semitism, to oppose hatred, oppose Jew hatred, excuse me. And it has just become kind of like a generic bland wing of the left's kind of intersectional hierarchy of groups. I mean, it is increasingly indistinguishable from Southern Poverty Law Center, NAACP, I mean, any other kind of like generic kind of left-leaning civil rights org. But that was not what the ADL was supposed to be. And the more that they kind of, I mean, the most recent, obviously, mini controversy, I can't quite tell how much this controversy is strictly limited to Twitter because I, I feel like I live in a bubble. But, they, but, but the most recent little controversy is how the ADL has actually changed their own definition of racism like three times over the past month. And like now they've, they're admitted and they're working with like a working definition. They're basically tweaking it to reflect what kind of modern critical race theory says is racism, you know, getting back to this kind of notion of structures of power and oppressed oppressor. So long story short here, if I, I mean, if I were talking to Jonathan Greenblatt, I would say, look, there are plenty of left-leaning orgs that do a lot of the work that you have your organization trying to do here, and you should stick to your lane. And your lane, at least as was initially conceived and formulated, was opposing Jew hatred. And oh, by the way, Jason, I don't need, I don't need to be the one to tell you that purpose, that mission has never been more needed, obviously. I mean, anti-Semitism, based on every statistic we see, obviously is on the rise, both domestically and abroad. So we need the ADL to recover a sense of what it once was. And there's no particular reason it can't be that again. They just need to actually decisively say that and shift course. Josh Hammer, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on this. Really appreciate it. Anytime, Jason. So you're so you're you're hoping she won't be fired. Is that I'm correct? I'm hoping she won't be fired. I think you know she did. Like I'll give her a you know a B plus, right? She owned <laughs> up to it. I'd give her an A if she then takes this and actually uses it moving forward. I hope she does. From the people that were on the show who know her personally and others I've spoken to, she sounds like the kind of person who might. If she leaves it at that, okay, she did what she had to do. I don't think she des- deserves to be fired. But I think we. Um, those leading voices in the Jewish community, those leading voices who speak about the Holocaust, who want to educate people, should use this as a teaching moment, by not by not by condemning her. I mean, I don't think that does any good to anybody, and I think we'll have lost that special moment to try to use it. I think we should use it to try to, I don't know how you feel about the book Mouse, but I think we should use it to put an even brighter spotlight on that book. I think it was an excellent book. My kids read it. I read it along with them. And I think it has a place in the curriculum. I think the Tennessee school board uh, decision was just a really dumb, ill-informed decision. So I a little bit disagree with you about that, which will probably surprise you as well. But, um, uh, you know, I think, you know, from kids, Orthodox kids, ultra-Orthodox kids across the globe managed to learn about the Holocaust without having to look at, you know, um, you know, naked photos. And uh, I don't think that their education is lacking because their parents feel that um, that should not be a part of it. So I, I, I don't know at what age I would say mouse is appropriate for. I certainly read it too young, I think. Um, it, it could be eighth grade is an appropriate age. It could be 10th grade is an appropriate age. But the idea that saying that this is not the appropriate book for that age group, I don't think that that that's by definition an act of Holocaust denial. I mean, it could be that they are, you know, in general trying to, you know, sweep the Holocaust on the rug. That would be bad. But if you recall, Mouse has a um, within it, it has a, a kind of a reproduction of a, um, a magazine drawing he did about his mother's suicide, and I, I believe he comes upon his mother's naked body in the bathtub after she killed herself. And you know, I, I think that's important for me as an adult to be. Ex- to that because the ramifications of the Holocaust were far reaching in ways like that, that we don't hear about. But I don't know that I feel that a parent saying, look, I, that's not the necessary, a necessary component of my eighth graders Holocaust education. I don't know that that is by definition, an act of bigotry or censorship. I mean, they're not banning it. They just said, let's find another text. Yeah. Look, fair point. And the truth is I haven't read the book in a long time. I don't remember the scene that you're talking about. And if 
And I do agree with you that if they substitute it for appropriate material that doesn't shy away from the horror, okay, I get it. And maybe I would add a PS of, but we would encourage the high school, 10th grade, 11th grade, whatever, to do it. Uh, I wouldn't take issue with this. And, and, and I'll admit one more thing because, you know, I'm all about transparency. I was so focused on the whoopee thing that I didn't delve nearly as deep into the mouse issue as I am on the whoopee issue. And, and maybe I ought to do that as well. So all fair points they're raising, and I appreciate that. My mouth is not on the floor on this response that you just gave. <laughs> Let me ask you the what I think is my real takeaway from here, which is where do we go from here? Let's leave Whoopi aside and ABC's suspension of Whoopi and ABC's apology slash, you know, uh, standing with the Jewish community, which I actually think was excellent. Uh, you could jump in if you think that's wrong. But um, what do you think we should be doing from here because of what happened? So there's an interesting thing happening where with the whoopee situation, it seemed to me like what you had was a lot of conservatives defending her. So she got a lot of defense on Fox News because they have taken this anti-cancel culture position. And then she also got a lot of defense on the liberal side because, A, I don't think that they take you know offenses against the Jewish community as seriously. But also, B, there's this tendency... To, to sort of, as soon as it comes for your own, to be like, well, isn't this cancel culture thing going a little too far? You know, suddenly, like you heard that, and it was very similar to what happened when liberals started getting Omicron, which was suddenly they started admitting the things that conservatives have been saying for two years, you know, oh, maybe cloth masks don't work. Oh, maybe you can transmit it if you, if you are vaccinated. Oh, maybe we should have kept the schools open, right? Like all of these things suddenly um, they were able to admit because it came for them and they were no longer able to sort of use the virtue of not having gotten it, you know? Um, and, and, and I think that, um, to me, you know, if, if that lesson is learned of like, this has gotten out of hand, people have to be able to apologize. What kind of a society doesn't have grace, doesn't have forgiveness in it. Like if that's the lesson that's going to be learned by the left, because cancel culture came from one of theirs, I would be very happy with that. I very much worry about the cynicism that gets, uh, produced by the hypocrisy, by you know the tastemakers, the people who, who who control most of our cultural institutions, when they are easier on their own than on others. So I, I really hope that you know Whoopi is back at the view, you know, very soon, and that we can all learn the lesson that we should all be more forgiving and 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 be able to do what Whoopi did, which was apologize, you know, instantaneously three times, twice well, once less well, uh, and move on from this. Yeah, look, that's really along the lines of what I think I'm going to be telling my kids, which is we can't raise you to be people who won't accept apologies unless you have a real mm-hmm. reason to think that she wasn't sincere. And there is no real reason to think mm-hmm. that. Um, how do you not accept her apology? It's one of the basic tenets of Judaism, right? It's when we go to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we ask forgiveness. We not only ask forgiveness from God, but we ask forgiveness from each other. So what do we become if we say we won't forgive Whoopi? Moreover, as you say, she did it instantaneously. Oh, fine, I give her a B plus, but you know, you may give her an A. But either way, she she did a pretty good job. She didn't do like a rote, you know, she used the right words. I go back again. I don't have the exact quote, but the I was not informed well enough. I'm better informed now and all that. So I always try to look at things through the lens of me being a father of six kids. And I think your message is important. And I hope that both sides, left and right, Take that to heart. Amen. So thank you, Bacha. Thanks for joining me. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, look forward to catching you again soon. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, it's Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I'm really glad I did this special Whoopi Goldberg series. I learned a lot by listening to my guests. I'd like to thank Rabbi David Wolpe, Rabbi Marvin Heyer, Rabbi Abraham Cooper, David Suisa, Abe Foxman, Rabbi Shmuley Botech, Eli Kohanim, Rebecca Sugar, Daniela Greenbaum, Josh Hammer, Yossi Gestetner, and Bacha Ungar Sargon. Each of you shared your thoughts, your honest thoughts about the situation with Whoopi Goldberg, Thank you so much for participating. I learned a lot. We have some great episodes coming up. Early next week, you're going to hear from the Foreign Minister of Qatar, Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdul Rahim Al Thani. 
be sure to tune in. It's a fascinating discussion that I had with him at his home in Doha, Qatar. Following that, later in the week, we're going to do some podcasting about the World Cup that will be held in Doha at the end of the year. I got to record from Stadium 974. It is made out of, if you can believe it, shipping containers. Do tune in. Some exciting guests. Beyond that, we have other guests as well. Share this with your friends, families, and colleagues. I hope you learned a lot from the Whoopi Goldberg special series. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.